When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see what they have done, if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord. What if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So again, last week, Abraham uh, encounters these divine travelers, this trio, and he convinces them to come and rest. And, but they're not there just because Abraham insisted that they stay. They have something to say. They say to Sarah, look, you're going to have a baby within a year. But they, again, they have this other purpose for being there says that the word about the corruption of a couple of neighboring towns has reached the heavenly realm. And they're, they're there to do some like recon, to check it out for themselves. And that's very interesting in itself, right? Because that's not how we think of God as operating. You know, if we were to like make a list of the divine attributes, um, one of them would be one of the you know, a theology word is omniscience, meaning God is all-knowing. God knows everything, 
right? And then we might say, well, the other one is that God is omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere. So if God knows everything and God is everywhere, what, why, would he, why would God need to go check things out? None of this is necessary for God. Well, I think the reason we're getting it this way is it may not be necessary for God to operate this way, but it is necessary in the sense that it's necessary in order to have this interaction with Abraham. That's really why it unfolds in this way. This is for Abraham's benefit and for us as readers because it's going to show us something about God. God is operating in this way so that we might understand God better and know how we are to relate to that God. You'll notice that God begins by restating this covenant and emphasizing the covenant is I'm going to bless this guy and the nation that comes from him will be a blessing to the nations of the world. That's... That's, what the, that's the heart of their relationship. That is what this is about. But then he goes on, now do I say, do I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Because that might raise some questions about how committed is God to this blessing. If God's going to just go wipe out a whole uh, couple of cities, how, can, how much can we trust that this God is committed to blessing? Right? Because Abraham, uh, Abraham does over here, and those are the questions Abraham has. I think it was in, you know, before uh, this week, I think I had always assumed that Abraham is motivated here by concern for his nephew, Lot, and Lot's family that live in Sodom. But, and, and certainly that's there. But I think this is more of a conversation, not so much about Sodom, not so much about Lot, but about who this God is. Can this God be trusted? I mean, the questions are, are, you are committed to the blessing, right? Can you still be that God and do what it sounds like you're about to do? Wouldn't just 50 righteous people cause you to rethink this? About 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Uh, it reminded me of this, uh, the author, great biblical scholar, if you ever want to if you ever find anything about Richard Middleton, it's probably going to be great. Richard Middleton is an Old Testament scholar, uh, and in his book, his most recent book, he talks about the fact that as in grad school, he went through a period in his life where his faith really struggled. God felt very uh, distant, very absent. And he says that there was a, a psalm that turned him around. And it was Psalm 88. Now, if you, knew, if you know Psalm 88, you'd be like, what? Psalm 88? First of all, it's a lament. It's a complaint. And not only is it one, there are lots of laments, but this is the darkest of the laments. Most laments end in some consolation, some word of hope. Not this one. Uh, the, this one ends by saying, Darkness is my closest friend. Whew, what a line. This is, and that's also the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you might think of a psalm like that. Well, man, that's going to be the nail in the, last nail in the coffin of your faith, Richard Middleton. But no, it wasn't. It was the opposite. It revived his faith. 
It helped him to realize, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this experience. I don't have to just sit in silence. There's a chorus of voices inviting me to express what I'm feeling. God wants to hear this. Uh, God does not want us to settle for an absent God. And if, we, if, God feels, if God feels absent to us, we need to speak out. Well, that's who Abraham is here. He is, he is refusing to, have, to settle for a God that is less than what God has promised to be. He's not, he, he's not interested in a God who's just sort of calculated, a God who doesn't bat an eye at collateral damage. You know, as long as those who have it coming get what's coming, well, sorry that some other people get swept up in it. And so Abraham pushes. And, and you notice how that passage was written. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything to try to summarize that conversation. It takes us, there's so few, there's so little dialogue really in Genesis. So when, it does, when you do have this full conversation, it sort of stands out. It, I think, again, here's a, this passage wants us to feel that tension of Abraham like, keep pushing, keep pushing. And how is God going to respond to being pushed? And what you find is God sort of responds the same way when Abraham says 50 as when God brings it, brings it down to 10. Oh, I love baby, baby sounds. Those are the best. Anyway, um, God can handle our feelings. God can handle our concerns, our questions, our doubts. What God does not want is our silence. In fact, we're going to talk about uh, silence and in a few weeks, because Richard, Richard Middleton's book is called The Silence of Abraham, because he argues there's a passage coming up where Abraham doesn't say anything when he should have. But here, it's worth uh, noting that Abraham is up to the challenge to, t take, to talk to God. And that challenge leads God to commit to saving the cities for the sake of So what's interesting about the way this, this story uh, develops is that you have the three, the three going out, and then it says that the two other visitors keep going while Abraham and God have their conversation. So these, they go on, and they continue to check out the city of Sodom. And that's what happened. We, that's the story in the next chapter. Um, what happens when they go into the city is uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot, sees them, and Hey, lots of chip off the old block. He insists that they come to stay at his house, that he's, and he's, he goes above and beyond in showing hospitality. So that, um, Lot is like Abraham in that sense, in the way Abraham showed hospitality to them when they traveled by his house. But Lot is not the only one who sees these visitors coming in. Everybody else in town sees them coming in too. And their reaction is the opposite as where Abraham and Lot go above and beyond in terms of hospitality, the rest of the town, and, and the passage emphasizes it's everybody, they go above and beyond in terms of their hostility to these visitors. They, you know, what they want to do is they, they want Lot to bring those guys out so that they may have sex with them. So... Uh, you know, in terms of evaluating whether this is a righteous city, eh, not so great. Not so great. But 
question is, 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 hear me out here. Is that the problem? Is that, is what we're seeing here, is that what was being reported up, to, you know, when God says he heard this outcry about Simon Gomorrah, is this what we're seeing? Or is it uh, something else? And when I'm, well, I think the way we need to see this is, uh, let's say for, I developed these large boils and sores all over uh, my body, and the doctor says, you have um, smallpox. Well, those sores, that's not the smallpox. That's the symptom of the smallpox. What's happening here in this scene is not, this is, it's not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Um, now, I say that recognizing that that's not often how this is, passage is interpreted. Frankly, this desire on the part of the, the people of Sodom to have sex with these, these uh, visitors, they have seen that as like, well, that's the problem, right? Um, at one point, all 50 states had sodomy laws uh, in refer a reference to the people of Sodom and their laws banning sex between uh, people of the same uh, gender. And, and I guess in a way they were saying, well, we need to protect our own state from God's judgment because obviously God is judging this. Okay, there's a problem with that though. The problem with that is that the... Uh, Prophet Ezekiel tells us what the sin of Sodom is, and it, there's no mention of that. Here's what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, verse 49. This, is, this was the outcry that God hears, and that's what, that requires God to go and investigate. It says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and needy. That, that's not, what we saw in, seeing in this chapter is a symptom of the problem, but that's the real problem. And if that's the case, sodomy laws ought to be, shouldn't be about sex, they should be about economics. They should be they should guard against policies and practices that take advantage of the vulnerable or, or that produce systems in which the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Uh, a sodomite might be, you know, some corporate CEO who makes more in a day than uh, some entry-level worker makes in a year, right? That's what that would be about. If we're talking about the sin of Sodom, that's the sin of Sodom. And that's not to downplay what happens in this passage. It's clearly... This is clearly evidence that there is something terribly wrong in, Sod in this Sodom. But I think it might be, I mean, what's happening here is what uh, happened in the South during the Civil War, or Civil Rights era, right? I think about, like, uh, the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. Beautiful campus. Uh, probably one of the most beautiful campuses in the country. And I would say, by and large, it was, students there had a wonderful experience, great education, great relationships, they, great memories of cheering on the running Reds. But at the same time, there was a system at work there that was racist. 
And it was only when federal troops brought in James Meredith, the African-American, to be the first African-American student, that exposed that system. And then this beautiful campus was a war zone. I mean, uh, photographs of what happens in, in response, I mean, there are burned out cars and debris everywhere. So the real ugliness comes out when the system is confront, has to confront itself. So in a sense, that's what's happening here. There's a system in, in place at Sodom where just normal operating procedure is that the rich get richer and the poor get oppressed, the needies are, are ignored and so forth. And now they see these visitors come and somehow they sense they are being um, evaluated. And they're, they're more, there's fear there, right? They're, they're, they know they're being judged and so now even your most at your average citizen has joined this gang rape mob uh they're because they're gonna flip the script oh you're gonna judge us you're you're gonna try to shame us for who we are we're gonna shame you right you're gonna expose us no we're gonna expose you you threaten us no we're gonna threaten you so the threat to this the system brings out the worst in, in these people. It's a corrupt system, and this, when the angels show up, boy, it's on full display. And so clearly, the text wants us to say, look, this place is worthy of judgment, right? I mean, they will kill and preserve, uh, or kill and rape in order to preserve their, this, this, this unjust system. So the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the outcry that God has heard, well, yep, they, they, it was not a false report. On the other hand, does that justify what's going to happen? The rain of fire down from the sky and destroy it, leave the whole thing in a smoking ruin? Well, you know, I think so, so many of us have, and for good reason, Come to understand, look, uh, our job in reading the Bible is to be like, yep, God did the right thing. And, uh, and to just sort of be totally comfortable with it. I don't, I mean, we can say, yeah, they, they were worthy of judgment, but uh, does God want us to be comfortable with God, what God does here? Um, I mean, the fact that, he's, that God is so receptive to this pushback from Abraham, you know, I don't know, I don't think God wants us to be comfortable with this. Whether we think it was justified or not, I think we are supposed to be uncomfortable, right? In the same way we're supposed to feel that tension between God and Abraham in that conversation. Well, there's got to be some tension uh, about this move. Because here's the other thing about all this. Abraham gets down to 10. And I think up until this week, I've always thought, okay, well, that has meant uh, you've got Lot, Lot's good, right? Shows his hospitality. You've got Lot's wife. Good. That's two. Uh, Lot has two daughters. Good. All right, four. We just need to find six. But this text even makes that a little bit problematic, right? Because, yes, Lot shows uh, hospitality. But then the angels are like, you have got to get out of here. It's about to go down. And Lot's like, oh, really? Do we have to go all the way over there? And they're like, yes. He's like, well, what if I just went over there? They're like, okay, you can just go over there. You're like, you should read the text. Uh, and, 
And uh, he, he's supposed to go to the city. He's like, he doesn't want to go to the city. And it, just hemming and hawing and hawing. And the, the thing talks about how time is passing here. And they're like, you have got to go. And then they said, okay, when you go, don't look back. Well, who looks back? His wife looks back. She turns into a pillar of salt, whatever that means. But some, you know, like, oh, for Pete's sake. Uh, and then... And then there's this whole scene with Lot and his daughters, and I'm not even going to get into that because uh, it's, it's troubling. So there's something kind of messed up in this family. So if, you wanted, if you're doing your count, um, I don't know, do we get, do we, do, are we going to go with four? Or, or is, there, is there really no one who is righteous? Anyway, so I said, Abraham's concern is not Primarily about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not about his nephew and his nephew's family. It's concerned primarily who this God is. And of course, that's not to say he's not concerned about Sodom and Gomorrah or his nephew and his nephew's family. But he realizes this God has got to be good. Otherwise, we're in trouble. It is a story of judgment. God rains fire down and leaves two cities in a smoldering ruin. But there is also is a story of God's, about God's mercy. First of all, God, uh, it, it is, you know, first, it's not enough for God to, to just hear an assessment of Sodom. That's enough. We'll, yeah, we'll, 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 no, God is going to go down and investigate. God is going to get... Uh, he's not going to render judgment from a safe distance. Also, there, of course, the sign of God's mercy is God's willingness to hear this pushback from Abraham. Uh, will you do it for 50? Nope, won't do it. 45? Nope. 20? No. And then again, the fact is, it's not just that, they don't, they, it's not just that 10 is too high of a bar to, uh, for, for Sodom to reach. Zero. Is really too much. Everybody's sort of a mess. Um, and it makes you wonder, should, should Abraham have pushed even harder? Should Abraham have, Abraham have said, oh God, what if no one is righteous? What if you just not do it? Uh, I, yes, the system is corrupt. They, it's all, you know, they, they, are, they don't hear the cries of the poor and the needy. And, but if you try to address that, they're just going to get worse. Just leave it alone. This Wednesday, we begin, Ash, uh, we begin the season of Lent. And Lent, of course, culminates in Good Friday. Now, on Good Friday, again, we have a God who does not render judgment from a distance. We have a God who comes close. God becomes one of us. Here again, a, syst a violent system is exposed, right? And some actually carry out the violence. You have the, the Roman soldiers that you know, seem to take pleasure in just uh, beating Jesus and so forth. You have others who are scheming to make sure it happens. You have others that cheer it on and you still have other, even the best of them. They're not so great. They flee. They save their own hide. They abandon their friend. They're all 
caught up in the system. And so we want to ask God, okay, God, what if there's only one that is righteous? Will you, will you not destroy for the sake of one? And God says, for that one, I will not destroy it. And then we say, okay, God, what if we destroy that one? And God says, well, then, then you will know that I am mercy. That who I am is mercy. And that this mercy is more powerful than violence, more powerful than death, more powerful than a firestorm raining down from heaven. This mercy destroys systems of violence and oppression and opens up whole new worlds. It brings life, eternal life. As I said, it's Ash Wednesday, we'll receive the that's mark of death. The sign that you are caught up in the system a system from which, left to your own devices, you cannot escape. You also receive the bread and the cup, signs of the covenant God makes with us. And at the heart of that covenant is mercy, this power-packed mercy that brings life. And when you've received that, the sign of life, you're sort of, you sort of find yourself in Abraham's position, wondering if it's true. Wondering, how do I live into this? What does it mean to, to have this covenant, this God of mercy? Can I trust this? Can I trust that, God, that mercy is at the heart of this, even in a world and even in systems that are so messed up? Even for people like us, is there mercy? So at that service, you'll receive this little ball of clay. You'll mold it into a bowl, a little pinch pot, you know, as a sign of your willingness, of your, to open yourself up to God. Your willingness to believe, okay, I, I wanna believe that there is mercy. I wanna be receptive to that mercy, to be, have that treasure in my clay jar. And to allow that to give your, give life to your advent, to give, to be that mercy for to receive it for yourself and to extend it to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.